Hello, you beautiful people. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is David Buss. He's one of the founders of the field of evolutionary psychology, professor of psychology at the University of Texas, and an author. We are talking about the hidden psychology of sexual conflict. The topic of sexual deception, harassment, and assault are an emotive, highly charged conversation. Men are accused and women are afraid, but why do these conflicts even arise? Why is it that men and women's sexual desires diverge? David's new book opens Pandora's box to this complete hell of a murky world, and we're going to try and navigate through it today without getting cancelled or upsetting too many people. Expect to learn the key differences to men and women's sexual desires, how the overperception bias explains much of why we are confused, why women are attracted to bad boys, how men are mentally hardwired to objectify women, how mate value discrepancy can cause all manner of catastrophes, whether all men are rapists, and much more. God, I adore this conversation. If you liked the 15 harsh psychology truths with Adam Lane Smith a couple of weeks ago, you will love this one. Evolutionary psychology to me is endlessly fascinating. It allows us to peer under the hood and work out why we are the way we are. And David is one of the godfathers of that field. Again, you have the opportunity today, as you're listening to this conversation unfold, to notice any emotional reactions that arise inside of yourself and question why are they there? What is it about this insight that's causing you to feel that way? For men, there are lots of uncomfortable truths that come up in this around some of the reprehensible things that men have done to women over the ages and to women as well. There are some things that make it sound like perhaps David's giving men a pass or perhaps the hashtag not all men actually might be true. All of these things should give you pause. They should give you reason to think, okay, how can I assess my assumptions around this? How can I have a more balanced viewpoint on what is perhaps one of the most charged conversations of the last decade? If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to hit the subscribe. In fact, before you even listen, it's awesome. Just go and hit the subscribe button now for me. Navigate to your little podcast app and make sure that it's been pressed and it means that you will never miss an episode when they are uploaded every Monday, Thursday and Saturday. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution and borrowing, Everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've won Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 
24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand and fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free Pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap. Plus, you get your first month for free and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. This episode is brought to you by... AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Also, there's a 90 day money back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days. And if you don't like it, they'll just give you your money back. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. Now please give it up for the wise and wonderful David Buss. David Buss, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hey, delighted to be here talking to you. It's happy book release day. Yes, it is. Uh, it's it's uh, hugely exciting. Uh, I've been getting a ton of email. People are tweeting about it and, you know, uh, Facebooking about it. So there's uh, it's kind of an explosion on social media. So it's, it's very exciting. And, um, you know, this is one of these things where this book took me three years to write and... It represents more than 30 years of research on and off, not, not continuous research. So uh, it is a true labor of love. And so it's nice to see this thing finally hatched. Well-deserved. Really, really well-deserved. I said to you before we started, I absolutely love this. Um, how would you char- characterize what evolutionary psychology is and why it's interesting and useful? Oh, boy, that's a big question. Um, So I will try to be succinct on that. Evolutionary psychology is simply psychology uh, looked at through the lens of evolutionary theory. And it basically is a um, uh, adds important ingredients such as functionality. So whereas most psychologists, they don't look at what is the they don't ask the question, what is the function of whatever psychological mechanisms we have? Uh, they just say, you know, here's a phenomenon, cognitive dissonance or obedience to authority or attribution uh, bias or uh, uh, evolutionary psychologists ask, well, what is the evolved function, if any, uh, of the psychological mechanisms we have, be they food preferences, be they mate preferences, habitat preferences, 
coalition formation, friendship formation, uh, navigating kinships, navigating social hierarchies. And that functional lens, uh, just posing that question adds a layer of depth to our understanding of psychology that has been missing prior to an evolutionary perspective. And so I think it, it, it brings quite a lot uh, to the table. And um, I remember early on in, in the field of evolutionary psychology, Lita Cosmides, a, a friend and one of the founders of the field, told me um, that, uh, it, it, that there's no such thing as a non-evolutionary psychology. And um, at that time, I was a little skeptical, but I've kind of come around to her view in, in the sense that there's no other causal process that we know about that could have fashioned whatever, you, whatever uh, psychological mechanisms we have housed in our brain, which, of course, is an evolved organ. That's perfect. What an answer. Um, this book in the U.S. is Why Men Behave Badly, and in the U.K. it's Bad Men. Yes. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, I'll tell you the story, about, story that. about that. Well, first yeah. off, why men behave badly at all? Why not men and women behave badly? Uh, well, so first of all, the book is about sexual conflict and the, the co-evolution of conflict between males and females, which goes back about 1.3 billion years. Uh, so sexual back to sexual reproduction. But I titled the book um, When Men Behave Badly, The Hidden Roots of Sexual Deception, Harassment and Assault for a very particular reason. And that is that I, when I started, I uh, thought I was going to give equal treatment to men and women. And there's a sense in which I do. So the first five chapters or so are equally uh, bad stuff men do and bad stuff women do. So, for example, deception and Internet dating uh, is, is a prime example. But when you get to the more um, high cost inflicting uh, behaviors, so intimate partner violence, stalking, sexual coercion, sexual harassment, sexual assault, uh, the more extreme you get, men tend to have a more of a monopoly on these more dramatic and cost-inflicting behaviors. And so uh, over the, the last four chapters of the book, I focus more and more heavily on men as perpetrators and women, uh, women's co-evolved defenses to prevent becoming a victim. Uh, of these uh, of these horrendous uh, generically forms of sexual violence. Um, and uh, so um, and so that's why I call it when men behave bad. It's not it's not a book about male bashing uh, because I specifically talk about it's not all men. Uh, so, uh, some men are more prone to these forms of sexual violence than others. And we can get into that in, in detail. And also when men behave badly, uh, even men who do it don't do it all the time. I mean, it's one of the interesting things is you can have a man who's happily married, has a loving relationship with his wife, loving relationship with his kids, but then engages in some really bad stuff on the side. Um, and so the book tries to identify not only which men do this, but what are the circumstances in which men are most likely to do it? And so, uh, so, so anyway, so that's the, the title for the U.S. Um, the U.K., uh, what happened was here. Here's the twist on that. My my UK publisher told me that that a while back there was a UK sitcom called some. It's called. You can clarify for. It's called uh, uh, Men Behaving Badly. Yeah, was with Martin with Martin Clunes. Yes. Yeah, and, and so it's a, a sitcom, and so my publisher, my UK publisher, is worried that people would that in the UK would have that association. Some sort of biopic was, of the 
men behaving badly sitcom series written <laughs> written by David Buss. Right, right, right. So, <laughs> uh, so the, hence the, the the change in title uh, to to Bad Men in the UK edition. But the content is identical, and the subtitle, uh, "The Hidden Roots of Sexual Deception, Harassment, and Assault," is identical. So the book is identical, except for that uh, main title in the UK. Cool. Yeah. Well, at least Martin Clunes isn't knocking on your door asking for royalty or usage or something <laughs> like that. That would be a bad right. idea. So before right. we before we get into it, what do we need to know about sex differences and male female mate preferences before we can kind of get into this discussion? Uh, okay. Well, that's uh, yeah. Well, that that's an important topic because sex differences in mating strategies and in sexual psychology these are the root causes of conflict between the sexes and so if you don't understand those you can't understand why men and women get into conflict and this is in the context of um you know this is kind of surprising to me in broad in the broader field of psychology uh, and that is that in psychology we have a replication crisis which you and your your listeners probably are familiar with, but these sex differences are among the most robust and replicable findings in the entire field of psychology. While everyone else is having a crisis, these are replicable and they're solid and they're not trivial in, in magnitude either. So, um, so to get into just a few of them, one, a key critical one is sex differences in desire for sexual variety. And what I mean is the sex differences in desire for a variety of sex partners. And so this is measured in a, uh, many different ways. So how many sex partners would you ideally like to have over the next year, five years, 10 years? Um, you know, men say, uh, well, over the lifespan, men say about 18 sex partners would be about right. Women say four to five. Um, many just say one. Uh, so uh, sexual fantasy is uh, studies of sexual fantasy, another indication. So uh, how often do you have sexual fantasies and about whom do you have sexual fantasies? And men to have sexual, tend to have sexual fantasies about a, a wider variety of different uh, women uh, if they're heterosexual. And, um, and they also do more partner switching during the course of a single sexual fantasy episode. So... Uh, so just, just to give you one example, so in the studies of sexual fantasy, one man said, uh, my fantasy is I'm, I'm the mayor of the town, so high status, and all the women down Main Street uh, have no clothes on, and every day I, I get up and I stroll down Main Street and decide which woman I want to have sex with that day. Uh, well, it's very, like an very... inverse. It's like an <laughs> inverse of the emperor has no clothes. It's like the, towns, <laughs> right. the townspeople have no clothes, and they're all yes. female. Right. And they're all female. Uh, so but uh, so that's just kind of an illustration. And, uh, and then there's like how often you think about sex. Um, how often do you fantasize about sex with someone who just a woman who just passes you on the street? Um, uh, if you've known a person for a particular length of time and find them attractive, how much time would elapse before you were willing to have sex with them? And for men, it's close to zero, you know, one second. Um, you know, and women typically need a lot more information. So there are many different sources of evidence that all converge on this key sex difference in desire for sexual variety. And this is one of the things that um, now, of course, one of the things that you were kind enough to ask about evolutionary psychology, one of the things that evolutionary psychology does 
is it distinguishes between underlying psychology and its expression in manifest behavior. And so uh, many men have these desires, but they don't just act on them. So we, fortunately, this would be disastrous if men just walked down the street and had a desire for sex with a woman and just like lunged, you know, that would be um, total disaster and chaos. Uh, and in fact, men probably don't, they, they might act on one out of a thousand of these um, sexual, these forms of sexual ideation. Uh, uh, and so a lot of men, and so even this includes men who are married or men who are already mated, they might have sexual attractions to women other than their partner, which they often do, and women do as well. Men just have them more frequently, um, but they may choose not to act on them for a variety of reasons that have to do with other components of our evolved psychology, our concern with reputation, uh, our concern with preserving our long-term mateship, uh, our, our concern with not damaging um, our uh, the social opinion in the eyes of our family, our peers, our, our work colleagues, and so forth. Um, and so, um, and so that's why some people, I think, mistakenly divide up the world into like two causal forces, like there are social cultural forces, and then there are evolutionary forces. And what evolutionary psychology does is it breaks down the, this uh, false dichotomy, as we call it, uh, because our evolved psychology is designed to be responsive to these social and cultural conditions, including social norms and social reputation. How so? Uh, well, we, we evolved in small groups, uh, and the small groups had status hierarchies. All groups have status hierarchies, informal or formal, and your position within the status hierarchy influences a whole raft of things, like who wants to be your friend or ally and who's willing to mate with you. Uh, so, Specifically uh, for men more than women? Uh, well, for both. So, so I've studied um, status and reputation, things that lead to increases and decreases in status and reputation. Both sexes are very, very concerned about reputation, including, importantly in this context, sexual reputation. So, um, you know, you have a reputation as a uh, cheater uh, or as a guy who uses women or as a guy who cheats on his wife, I and mean, that's going to damage your reputation, which is why men who do act on their married men or men in relationships who do act on their sexual attractions to other women uh, go to great effort to try to conceal it. You know, so um, they try to have their cake and eat it, too, so to speak. So they want to. Uh, uh, engage in the sexual activity, but not incur the social costs of that, that being known. Uh, so, um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so anyway, so that's a big sex difference. Other sex differences include sex differences in mate preferences. So, for example, um, uh, you know, and, and I demonstrated this early on quite a while ago in my study of 37 cultures that men... Uh, and women, they share many mate preferences. So both sexes want partners who are intelligent, kind, healthy, dependable, and so forth. No one wants a, a mean, stupid, uh, disease-ridden partner. <laughs> uh, but, um, but there are some sex differences that are universal. And, and, and men tend to prioritize relative youth and physical appearance, physical attractiveness in potential mates. Women also value physical appearance, and this is one of the mistakes people make. They think that women don't care about it. They, they care about it a lot. They just don't care about it as much as men do. 
meant it's kind of like it, it overwhelms a lot of other things in the male brain, the physical appearance. Uh, and women tend to prioritize financial resources uh, and, and even more important, the personality characteristics and social characteristics that lead to resources over time. So things like, is the man ambitious? Does he have drive? Does he have goals? Or is he, you know, sitting around playing video games all day and, you know, eating Cheetos and drinking beer, uh, which is perfectly okay. Uh, it's just that women like, like men who have some, uh, some drive and, and also social status. So social status, as I mentioned, that's a, a key correlate of access to reproductively relevant resources. And so, um, you know, in all groups, resources are heavily concentrated toward the top and then, and then get less and less as you move toward the bottom of the bottom of the barrel social status wise. And so those are some sex differences in mate preferences. And they also can create conflict between the sexes. Uh, so, um, for example, violation of those things is a key cause of divorce in relationships. So if the guy loses his job, and this is a topic maybe we can get into a little bit later, because uh, during the pandemic, there's been a spike in intimate partner violence. And one of the predictors of intimate partner violence is guys who don't have the benefits to provide women. And so they inflict costs on the woman in an effort to try to keep her. Uh, to adjust the mate value discrepancy. Yeah, to adjust the perceived mate value discrepancy. So, yeah, yeah so, so and, and this is a horrendous thing, and people might be very upset by this, but I uh, think there's good evidence that one of the, that, that intimate partner violence, as abhorrent as it is, it actually has a function. And the function is, is, a, is a desperate measure to hold on to a woman who, who wants to leave. She wants to defect from the relationship. Uh, or, you know, dip her toe in the water with an infidelity to see if there might be a better mate out there for her. Uh, and so and one of the things that uh, these uh, violent guys do, guys who are violent toward their romantic partners, is they try to cut off their, their friendships. They try to cut off their kin ties, their relationships with their family, their genetic relatives, in an effort to uh, strip them of bodyguards. And this is this is one of the things I talk about in the book also that is women's defenses against some of these forms of male bad behavior is bodyguards and bodyguards are absolutely critical. And so if the woman doesn't have, you know, the father around, the brother, the sisters, the mother, the, the friends, male and female friends, uh, very difficult for an abuser to abuse someone if they if the woman has these social allies the bodyguards. And so it's a critical defense, which is why these abusive men try to cut off those uh, bodyguards from, from the woman. So um, anyway, I don't know quite how we got onto that track. I do a whole chapter to intimate partner violence. Um, and I think it's a, it's a really important topic because uh, even in the most, um, like we, we might think about it as uh, you know, horrendously worse in some cultures than others, and, and it is. Uh, but even in the most uh, sexually egalitarian cultures, such as, say, the Scandinavian cultures, uh, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, uh, 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 the Netherlands, rates of intimate partner violence are around 27 to 30 percent in terms of lifetime incidents. That is the percentage of women who will um, experience intimate partner violence at some point. 
uh, in their lives. So that, as you're talking about close to a third of women who are subject to this. So I think it's a very important topic and has been relatively neglected. Um, it's certainly relatively neglected by, by evolutionary psychologists. And that's why I devote a whole chapter to it. It's, it, it's a form of sexual violence in that uh, even if the, um, the male doesn't rape his partner, which is another topic that I, that I talk about, uh, the physical violence is basically an effort to control her sexuality. And that's why I put it under the umbrella of sexual violence. Mitigating that sexual access is something that you talk about in detail to do with mate guarding and jealousy. And it seems to me like the, the effects that you're saying there where you have an incredibly controlling, mostly usually male partner in a relationship, it feels like that mate guarding turned up to 11. We feel that the partner that we're with is slipping away from us. We are concerned that you talk about um, creating a small bridge back into the dating pool rather than jumping mm. in feet first and, and getting cold, I think you say. Or yeah. you can create backup mates or you can trade up in value. There's all of these different tactics that both men and women use. Yeah. Um, and it feels like the situation you've just described there with the men is when it gets it gets turned right up to 11. Uh, some of the things that I went through this book, the number of photos I've taken and sent to my buddy Rob Henderson, who we are mutual friends with, and he's a oh, past, oh. past guest on this. The, I think one of the most interesting insights that I took from your book was the understanding of the over-perception and the under-perception bias. I think it's a cure for so many problems between yes. men and women and how they don't understand each other. Can you explain that? Yes. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. And, and that's another that's another important sex difference. So the uh, the kind of classic case is man and woman are interacting. Woman smiles at the man or casually touches his arm or incidentally brushes up against him. And he infers sexual interest on her part or romantic interest when it may not be there at all. Uh, so uh, and this is a very robust finding that. Uh, uh, you know, women often say, well, I was just being friendly. Uh, and in fact, a smile is one of those inherently ambiguous cues. You know, it could signal friendliness. It could signal sexual interest. It could signal uh, nervousness if they, she thinks the guy's a creep. Um, and, but men tend to over infer sexual interest when, it, when it's not there. And, and, and we think that they do. Um, this is work that I initially developed with Marty Hazelton, who's a former graduate student, now a professor at UCLA. And, um, and what we argue is that it's, it's an adaptive bias. So there's a reason that men have this, and that is that missing out on sexual opportunities uh, was extremely costly over, over evolutionary time. Uh, and so men have this uh, kind of over-perception bias to err on the side of not missing out on anything, even if there are it results in many false alarms. You know, it turns out no, the woman is not interested. In, although we also argue, and this is an interesting thing, that um, the fact that they think she's interested could actually be functional in converting her from initially uninterested to being interested. Uh, so, because um, it encourages behavior in the male, which is more likely to signal that he is interested, which can cause reciprocal interest from the female. Yes, that and. Uh, confidence. So if, if the man thinks she's interested, he's going to be more confident. And women value confidence and interpret it as a sign of a status. Even, and, even if it's unwarranted in reality, but then, <laughs> but then manifests from the male. 
Yeah, but that's why, like, if, if he thinks, uh, oh, she's not interested at all, and but I want to try to approach her, he's not going to be very self-confident in that approach. But if he thinks, oh, she's genuinely interested, even if it was a false belief, he's going to rant. He's going to feel more confident in his approach toward her. Uh, and, and then on the flip side, we also found and this is work that I did with uh, Karen Perilou, another former student, now a professor. And what we, we did a kind of like a speed dating paradigm in our lab where we brought men and women into the lab and had them interact with each other. And then afterwards say, do you think this person was sexually interested in you? How interested are you in them, et cetera, then kind of rotate. Uh, and what we found is that women uh, underperceived men's sexual interest. That is women thought, no, this guy's he's not interested in me. When in fact, the guys are saying, yes, I'm very interested in her. Uh, and so they tended to underperceive. Now, this is an interesting thing. This was the first time that's ever been documented. Um, and, uh, and and we have a couple hypotheses about why that's the case. So one is that men who are genuinely sexually interested try to eliminate um, expressing the sexual components of their interest uh, because, in fact, it backfires. So and we, we know this and there are, there are studies that have uh, documented this. I did one in, in my lab as well, where the more overtly sexual the approach, uh, the less the, the effective it is. So men, in essence, feign genuine interest, long-term interest, um, caring about what she thinks, how she feels and so forth, and, dis and disguise any sexual interest at all. And so it may be that women are sort of, well, he displayed no cues of sexual interest. So um, you know, I don't think he's interested. And the guys are saying, yes, I've been thinking about her constantly. So, um, so, so, but what, what this does though, is this, especially the male sexual overperception bias results in sexual conflict, because what it means is that guys are hitting on women and approaching women, uh, who are genuinely not interested. And, and, and so that creates this a problem, problem especially in the workplace, but uh, let's talk about the workplace, for example, uh, in that he thinks he's in, she's interested in him, so he approaches her, uh, and she is in a work context, so she might be a coworker, she might, the guy who's uh, approaching might be his, her boss, and so she has to deflect this sexual attention in a way that doesn't cause um, resentment on the part of the guy. Because if it's a, if it's a coworker or a boss, they can do reputational damage to her. They can not give her promotions. Uh, they can undermine her in various ways. And so women do things like, uh, uh, "Oh, I, I I can't I can't go out with you. Um, I have a boyfriend, uh, or I can't go out with you. I'm 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 visit, I'm seeing my girlfriends for a glass of wine tonight." Uh, and so they try to deflect. It, rather than saying, look, um, I don't find you attractive at all. I'm not interested at all. Please don't ever ask me again for anything. Um, they, they can't do that. So they, they try to basically uh, what uh, sometimes is called a soft rejection. So, uh, uh, you know, so but it puts women in this in this really uh, difficult dilemma, because then sometimes the guys come back and say, uh, well, get rid of your boyfriend or is your boyfriend in town? Now, um, you know, if not, let's uh, let's go out or, or um, you're busy tonight. How about uh, next Wednesday? Uh, and so and so the and what it turns out is with sexual harassment that in the workplace, a subset of men tend to be serial sexual harassers. 
So it's not all men who do this. It's not all bosses who do this. It's not all men in positions of power who do this. It's a subset that engage in multiple harasses, harass, harassment. And so women often know who these guys are. They'll sometimes tell a new female worker, like, watch, don't be, you know, alone with this guy in the supply room or whatever, because he's got wandering hands or uh, whatever. So, uh, but, um, but, but again, part of that is the sexual overperception bias can lead to uh, or contribute to sexual harassment. And, and that's why I think one of the key things is we have to understand at a deep level the underlying sexual psychology of men and women and how they differ in order to get the root causes of sexual conflict in order to eliminate or, or at best uh, uh, eliminate at best or minimize the sexual conflicts that occur because uh, these are these are pervasive forms of conflict. They uh, they occur in many different species and they occur in all human cultures. And uh, one of the things that uh, if I could <laughs> jump in, <laughs> I'll stop and ask, let you ask a question here since I'm just kind of rambling is uh, uh, and I borrowed this uh, quote. I kind of it was reading Steve Pinker's book, one of his excellent books. And and he noted that uh, sexual violence against women is perhaps the most widespread human rights violation in the world. And the more I thought about it, the more I think that he's right. And it's one of the things I argue in this book in that uh, you what you have is these forms of sexual conflict, they transcend culture, they transcend, uh, transcend ethnicity, they transcend religious groups. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. It's like a, you could say an equal opportunity um, destroyer, uh, if you will. And so, uh, and it affects half of the population uh, who are women, and it affects even more than that. So it affects all those who are primary victims, primary victims of sexual harassment, assault, uh, intimate partner violence, partner rape, um, or stalking. Uh, and, uh, and in addition, it affects all those women who have to engage in defensive maneuvers to avoid becoming a victim. So women, sometimes they can't go out at night or they can't go out at night alone uh, or they have to take uh, various precautions uh, and, and do things to prevent becoming a victim. So there's the primary victims who are victims and there's, then there's the secondary victims. And then there are all the people who care deeply about the women who are victims. So the the, the partners, the, the fathers, the brothers, the mothers, the sisters, the female friends, the male friends uh, who all care about this. And then they are also traumatized by the, their loved one being sexually uh, abused in one of these ways. Uh, and so and so that's why I say the most widespread human rights violation is sec is sexual violence toward women uh, and getting back to the evolutionary angle on it. So we, we have, uh, is it basically violates freedom of sexual choice. So we have, uh, at least in most Western cultures, we have uh, freedom of speech, we have freedom of the press, we have freedom of uh, peaceable assembly, we have these um, freedoms that are granted to us. But one of the freedoms that I think should be an international human right is freedom of sexual choice. Um, it, it's basically Darwin, 1871, 
uh, who, with his theory of sexual selection, where he observed that throughout the animal kingdom, uh, females tended to be more discriminating or choosy or discerning about who they had sex with, who they mated with. Um, and, and that's why uh, w- women have adaptations to, uh, to avoid that bypassing female choice and adaptations to be extremely upset about attempts or, or enactments of that violation, um, more upsetting than, than anything else. Uh, so more upsetting than, than just purely physical violence or other other forms of, uh, of violence. So uh, and, and so and so so this is something that everybody should care about. And one of the goals of my book, and, and this is perhaps uh, revealing of my uh, arrogance or, or former arrogance, I've uh, throughout my career, I've always kind of fancied myself as a basic researcher. Like I only I'm a I'm pure scientist. I just study not human applying nature. stuff. Yeah. Yeah, not applying stuff, and then, but then uh, uh, I realized as I was writing this book that this is tremendously important information to reducing sexual violence and reducing the, these abhorrent um, costs that are inflicted on women. And so, uh, so I've become more more applied, and I think that this information is extremely useful in reducing uh, the harms that are inflicted on women as a result of male sexual psychology. So, so anyway, this is a long-winded uh, uh, diatribe there, but so I'll let me pause and let you ask a question or make a comment. Well, I think so much of what you've gone through and, and reading the book, I have to confess, and this will be the same for a lot of men that read it, it's uncomfortable as a man to read yeah. the book. I right. think that you do a, a good job of easing us in and explaining the lay of the land with what is, to begin with, a, a relatively sort of balanced viewpoint. But as you say, as we get towards the more extreme ends of sexual violence, there simply isn't the research and presumably aren't the the, the um, data to underpin the research of women doing it to men. There are certain occurrences that happen, but when you get to the extreme ends, when you get to the rape, when you get to the the, the violence, the intimate partner violence and the, the stalking and stuff like that, it is disproportionately caused by men. And it's very difficult as someone who hasn't done that to read it and think, well, this isn't me. And then when we see um, overbearing and overstepping acts coming from the women's empowerment movement that again blame men for toxic masculinity and for the patriarchy being that it it is difficult to read and yet at the same time learning something like uh the uh, under perception and the over perception bias helps me to understand not only the the dynamic generally of the mating world but it also helps me to understand other men that aren't me and myself. Yes. So I think that's something that is super important. Yes, the, the the insights that you have around evolutionary psychology and how they inform our understanding of sexual conflict can help women to understand the risks, to get past them if it has occurred and to also deal with them sort of during the process as well if they are occurring. But I think it also helps men. If people understand, if men understand the fact that the woman is probably less interested in you than she seems and that you to her seem less interested than you seem. (laughs) Yes. If you simply understand that there is so much more transparency around, and this is, it's the same as learning a a cognitive 
bias, right? It's like a, a mating yeah. bias. It's when you learn fundamental yeah. attribution error, you actually realize, oh God, like that. That's not necessarily the way the world works. He's not an arsehole because he cut me up in traffic. He might just be late, like because I because <laughs> right. I've done it before. Um, but it is uncomfortable to read, and I think that's a good practice for both men and women to do. I enjoy delivering uncomfortable and harsh truths on the show as much as possible. And the reason yeah. is it gives us the opportunity to observe what rises inside of us. It's a mindfulness exercise, right? You observe the emotion that occurs as you hear something, as you hear X number of percent of women have gone through sexual harassment and you just want to scream out as a man, well, yeah, yeah, but not me. That's not me. And you go, right, right. we weren't saying it was. Right, and that's, that, the, that's the compulsion, that knee-jerk reaction, because right. for a lot of most recent popular culture, there has been a lot of finger-pointing. And given the stats, that makes sense. But also yes. the um, indignation of a, a, a huge swath of men is also understandable. But only yeah. with the data and the understanding can we actually work out why that's the case. Yes, yeah, so I think that's very eloquently eloquently put. Uh, and uh, I mean, I, I feel very much the same way that um, I mean, I don't, to my knowledge, I, don't, I haven't engaged in sexual harass harassment or sexual coercion. Um, uh, but that's, I think, why I titled the book When Men Behave Badly, because as I said at the beginning, it's not all men. And so I think it's it, it's that's an erroneous thing. I think most men, um, you know, hold their desires in check. Uh, for a variety of reasons that we that we talked about, but um, but 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 some men don't, and and uh, and and it's the some men that are really a, a danger, not just to women, but also to men in the form that you just alluded to, which is that um, men get a bad rap uh, and get blamed for things sort of as a generic half of the species uh, when that's not appropriate, uh, because. Uh, you know, there, there are men who would never dream of engaging, for example, in sexual harassment or intimate partner violence and um, and wouldn't do it even if you put him in the most conducive conditions for doing it. Uh, that's why some of these stable personality characteristics uh, are critical. So in, in the book, for example, I talk about uh, the dark triad as being critical. So the dark triad is a constellation of personality traits that is uh, narcissism, so, uh, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism. Narcissism being characterized uh, a hallmark as a sense of entitlement. So high narcissist guys, uh, they think that they're great. They think they're entitled to more than their fair share, a bigger slice of the pie. And, and, and so they overestimate their brilliance uh, and attractiveness. They, they think they're hot, but they're not. Um, or at least they're not, um, on average, more attractive than people lower on narcissism. Psychopathy is basically uh, the empathy circuit that most normal humans have is severed. So these guys, uh, a dog gets run over by a car and they laugh. You know, they have the, no empathy uh, for um, animals or, or other humans. That's why I actually have some litmus tests for uh, diagnosing some of these things. So ask a guy how he feels about pets you know, dogs or cats or, or, or whatever, or watch, watch them interact with them or watch them interact with a, a child uh, or watch how he treats waiters and waitresses. That's another indication, you know, so. Um, uh, and, um, and then Machiavellianism is basically 
people who pursue an exploitative social strategy. So these are people who sometimes come off as cooperators and then defect and cheat. Uh, They view other people as instruments or pawns to be manipulated and uh, toyed with and moved around to uh, like chess pieces so that they can um, obtain maximal benefit with least effort. Uh, And so so this constellation, uh, this uh, dark triad, especially when you combine it with a short-term mating strategy, these guys are most likely to engage in these bad forms of behavior like sexual harassment, sexual coercion. Uh, so um, so it, is, it is a subset of guys, and as I mentioned, a subset of guys who are doing the harassing that are, and this is why also I think your point is a good one, that, that men and women need to be aware of these things. Uh, so there are these biases in cross-sex mind reading that if we understand them, we can make appropriate corrections, uh, as you um, most eloquently put it. Why are women attracted to bad boys then? If you have this particular dark triad of traits, why do women yeah. get attracted towards those sort of guys? It, yeah, well, well, often, uh, well, there are two things. So, so one is that they do often have characteristics that women do find attractive in mates. So these guys are often very self-confident, okay? If you're high in narcissism, you, you think you're great and you think everyone else should think you're great. And, and we, as animals, we interpret each other at our own word, so to speak. If you have high self-confidence, people think, oh, he must have something going for him. Uh, and uh, they're often risk-taking. Uh, and so women find guys who are willing to, who are brave in the face of danger, willing to take risks, physical risks or social risks, like uh, telling a a joke to an entire room at a party uh, is a social risk, but also physical risk, uh, driving motorcycles and, um, you know, parachute jumping, ski jumping, other things. So these guys often have traits that are attractive to women, but they're especially attractive to younger women. Why is that? Uh, So uh, I I think part of it is um, inexperience. Uh, so these these guys, the high dark triad guys are disastrous as long term mates, but they can be sometimes very exciting as short term mates. And sometimes, you know, younger women engage in they're the new in the mating market. They engage in experimentation, some sexual experimentation, you know, uh, mate switching and so forth. As they mature, get some more experience. They want to settle down typically, not always, but typically into a long term committed mateship. And these guys, uh, the high dark triad guys, can be very exciting as short-term mates, but disastrous as long-term mates. And presumably the young women will have found that out, and you only probably learn that lesson a few times before you think there's a a pattern occurring here. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Why wouldn't that have managed to become adaptive? Why hasn't that evolved? Why, why aren't all women sort of born with that? Is it just that if it is a short-term mating strategy, then it probably would be adaptive because he's got excess fitness and excess reputation, therefore good genes, sexy son hypothesis, et cetera? Yeah, possibly. It, uh, that, I mean, that's, that's one hypothesis uh, about it. Uh, another is that we live in a, um, this is uh, under the rubric of evolutionary mismatches. We live in a pretty bizarre modern world that is very different from the world in which we evolved. So we, we evolved in small groups where you would have had um, perhaps exposure to a few dozen potential mates in your entire lifespan. Um, and in the modern world, we have access to thousands or millions of potential mates in large cities or through internet dating. Uh, 
and so uh, and so these men also can engage in behavior and escape the reputational consequences that would have occurred ancestrally. So in small group living, everybody knows everyone else and you start doing bad stuff like abusing women, uh, you're gonna get a reputation, they're gonna either kill you or ostracize you from, from the group. In the modern environment, we don't have that. So internet dating, you're, you're meeting total strangers, you don't know who their social group is, you don't know what their reputation is. So with a large urban settings and also geographic mobility, uh, these guys can escape what formerly would have been reputational damage, which would have been extremely costly. It's like a sexual snake oil salesman moving, proverbially moving from the from town to town, <laughs> but it's just from from girl yeah. to girl. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there is a subsection of the Meninism world or the uh, the Red Pill movement world for men's rights, actively working to create dark t triad traits. So they t they coach men on how to develop the dark triad really? traits. It's something oh. which is actually aspirational. I'll send you some articles um, yeah. once we're done. It is a fascinating corner of the internet. And some yeah. of the stuff that these guys write about, these bloggers, they're incredibly proficient writers, very, very erudite, incredibly articulate. And some of the things that they talk about are fantastic bits of advice for men. And then some of the other parts talk about how to cultivate... There's, entire series of how to cultivate your your dark triad um personality hmm. um because presumably from their side my theory is that these are often men who've either had no success with women or have had success with women and then been scorned and their strategy to now deal with the inevitable or perceived inevitable pain of the dating market is to never care is to develop that lack of empathy is to see people as tools mm. to be used so on and so forth so it almost becomes a defensive strategy that they can wrap around themselves and then also to create this um bravado this excess fitness which doesn't actually signal excess fitness this excess reputation which doesn't actually signal excess reputation and to use mm. that because they know they will get the success with the women from that plus they will inoculate themselves by never caring by not having the empathy they yeah. can never be hurt um and yeah it's it's a wow that's that's frightening terrifying mm. terrifying and yet for short-term mating strategies successful so it, it, you can imagine that in a world where that was the that was the outcome metric that a man was optimizing for that he might actually see what he was doing as successful and then see it as so successful that he would coach other men on how to do it and write a yeah. blog about it that was very articulate. So, right. yeah, God, yeah. I mean, the, the that whole world is, especially from an evolutionary psychology perspective, it is it is fascinating. I wanted to talk about how men and women differ in their motivations for stalking, because that is something I think culturally, especially among young people, we talk about young girls sort of stalking their partner's profile, seeing the, the other girls that he's liking and stuff like that. But you mean something mm. a little bit different here. You don't just mean kind of uh, distance mate guarding and kind of checking up on jealousy stuff. You mean right. something a little bit more intense. Yeah, yeah. So the what you just described, I would call information gathering. Um, stalking, when I talk about stalking, I'm really referring to criminal stalking. So it's a, um, 
it's a, it's a really a fascinating phenomenon. Uh, and so when it comes to criminal stalking, at least in the, I, I'm not sure what the UK laws, but I think there are there, I think they're similar to the US laws where uh, they're written in a way, so it has to be a pattern of conduct uh, such as following repeated phone calls, repeated uh, you know tracking of the of someone in a in a way that instills fear in the victim, and that instilling fear is a critical part of the definition of of criminal stalking. And so and so, a woman who's looking who's googling a guy she's interested in, or uh, checking up on his Facebook to see if he's partying with other women, that's not criminal stalking uh, because the guy. Presumably, she's doing it. He's not even aware. She's doing it covertly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so I would separate that activity from the criminal stalking that instills fear in the victim. Uh, and when you get to criminal stalking, you have about eighty percent of the perpetrators are are men, and about twenty percent uh, are women. So men do tend to have a monopoly, but not exclusive. So uh, there are women who do uh, who do stalk. I don't know if you ever saw the movie uh, Fatal Attraction. Yes. Uh, with uh, Michael Douglas has, has a as a, a brief a fling with uh, Glenn Close. He's married, has a bring bring uh, a, a brief affair with his coworker, and uh, she just proceeds to make his life absolutely miserable. Like boils his pet rabbit and does like it. It's like a disaster. There was a after that movie came. I think it's like this is old. This is nineteen eighty nine. I think after this came out, there was like a a uh, uh, a rampant epidemic of sexual fidelity. So guys were terrified of having a fair. No way. They'd been scared straight. Yeah. yeah, yeah Shit exactly. the bed. How yeah. funny. Yeah. Well, when you think through, I mean, that's the thing about infidelity is one of the things they, the, the, the quote benefits of it in terms of sexual gratification and so forth are in the here and now the risks and the costs are, they're uncertain, so they're probabilistic. We don't know if they'll occur or not, and they're somewhere in the distant future. Uh, and so, but this movie made it very uh, salient Visceral, you know, what, those, yeah, what yeah. those costs can be. How funny. What about unwanted sexual attention? Why do men do that? Is it just, is yeah. it explained heavily by the, the um, differences in perceived interest? Well, there are a couple of things there, and uh, I, I talk about that in the uh, in the chapter on sexual coercion. So one is um, that uh, a phenomenon that John Maynard talks about and did some cool lab work on called attentional adhesion. So basically, he has like a computer screen, and what he says is uh, an image is going to come up, and when that when that uh, and then somewhere else on the screen there will be a, an X. Uh, appearing either in one of the four quadrants of the screen. When that X appears, I want you to disengage from the image you're watching and then focus on that, that X. And so basically, the, in a nutshell, what he found is that when men are, when the image is of an attractive woman, men have trouble disengaging their attention. So, so they, they do, you know, oh, where is that? Oh, finally, I'll disengage. So he, attentional adhesion. So men have the, and, uh, it's linked to when that occurs. It's linked to a brain circuit known as the nucleus accumbens, and the nucleus accumbens is is one of the pleasure centers of the brain. So men literally feel pleasure from 
looking at attractive women. And there, there have been songs written about this, you know, I'm, I'm a girl watcher, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, so men are basically, uh, they have evolved mechanisms to attend to physically attractive women and find it very rewarding to be uh, to to look at attractive women, it's just and now that leads. That's also that's one of the background causal conditions for things like leering or ogling or you know catcalling or you know staring. I've talked to like for example, one woman told me uh, that when in her workplace she had to tell guys they kept staring at her breasts and she had to like say say look look my eyes are here like <laughs> she had to, like bring their attention away from her her breasts. And and so, you know, men have these um, brain circuits that are attuned to these features of women. And and these are part of the causal uh, the causal uh, background for leading to things. You know, you combine that with a sexual over perception bias, desire for sexual variety, um, the importance of physical appearance in men's sexual arousal, uh, you know, where men see the woman. They're attracted to her. They feel pleasure looking at her and they feel sexually aroused and they can't imagine that she doesn't feel the same way about them. Uh, and they don't. And this this actually gets to another sex difference, which is absolutely fascinating. And I talk about it, this in the book as well, that on average, men find women more attractive than women find men. Uh, and, and this one of the things this leads to is uh, in the uh, Internet dating world, the top um, 10 to 20 percent of men get the overwhelming avalanche of interest. It's a perfect from- Pareto, isn't it? It's the top 20 percent of men for the top 80 percent of women, the bottom 20 percent of men for the bottom 20 percent, at bottom 80 percent of women. Right, right. But but it is. But yeah, exactly. But so it's it's fascinating. So it plays out in the internet dating world. But it's fascinating to think that you know women just don't find men as attractive on average as men find women. So. Uh, and what that means is that men will find a larger array of women attractive and that attraction is not reciprocated. And, and then when it's not reciprocated, men do get uh, resentful. So um, I don't know if the, there's uh, this uh, old band that I that I love. It's part of my generation, but called The Doors, you know, Jim Morrison of The Doors. I think some uh, younger people know about it. But anyway, uh, Jim Morrison has a lyric in one of these songs, which is uh, women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Um, and it's kind of captures that um, resentment that men feel. And the, and you were alluding to this. Um, I don't know if it's a movement or a, yeah, with a, meninism a, a, and men's a, rights. Yeah. Yeah. But there, there's an, a related one, which is the, the incels. Uh, in acronym for involuntarily celibate. Mm-hmm. And these are men who are extremely resentful that um, that they're attracted to women, they're sexually aroused by women, and that and that attraction is not reciprocated by these women. And so they're involuntarily celibate. And uh, and we it, sometimes it shows up in extreme cases like the the uh, shooter out at Santa Barbara. Uh, the Isla Vista shooter, where he wrote in his, uh, I, guess, I don't know, was a Facebook or in his diary that said he's on this day, I'm tired. I'm, I'm going to punish all these people, you know, because I'm tired of being, you know, sexually rejected ever since I hit adolescence. I've wanted women and they don't want me. And and so the insults, they even have uh, terms for guys that women are attracted to. They call them chads. 
and then and then the the women they call uh, Stacy's. You know the, the the you know why Stacy? I don't know. Uh, but, Do you know uh, that so the the <clears throat> origin of incel actually came from a, a female? Huh. So the person I, that first posted about it was a female college student in a blog. I track. Oh, I didn't I, know that. I, I track this back last year again. Oh, I'll find cool. you. I'll find you the article for that. Yeah. So let's let's just kind of re- try and recap that that men uh, undertaking unwanted sexual attention thing, right? So we have a proclivity. Men men have a proclivity, a particular brain circuit which encourages them to look at women that are attractive or look at them in a sexual manner, which is, I guess, what would be classed as objectifying now in yep. some sort of a way, sexualizing, objectifying them. So that's hardwired into us. Not only that, but we get a reward for it. We get some sense of pleasure, which is there to encourage us to do it. Must have been evolutionary adaptive. Uh, again, it makes sense if there is the potential, if there's a 1% chance of having sex with this woman, you'd better be on your on, on your haunches, sort of on alert to do it just in case. Mm. On top of that, we have the overperception bias. We think that she is probably as interested as us. And I mean, th- that explains so much. That explains yes. so much, especially it, it explains why men act that way. And it should make women, I mean, th- I might be biased here, but that makes me feel compassion toward the men as well as the women. Because it yeah. makes me think you were at the mercy of your programming here. Yeah. You're well, desperately yeah. trying to wrangle your nature under control to be societally yeah. acceptable. Yes. And you combine that with the desire for sexual variety. That was the one I forgot. Uh, and a high sex drive. What that means is, and, and with respect to uh, feeling sorry for men, I think there's a way in which that's correct in that uh, men are saddled with these desires that can never be met you know that, that there is, are more women uh, than you that you want to have sex with than you can have sex with yeah yeah and and now i guess you know if you are a small percentage of men who are at the the top of the heap so i don't know if you're a famous rock star or a famous athlete you know they they do uh and and often fulfill their desire for you know hundreds and hundreds of sex partners but for most men uh for the vast majority of men they can't they're they're uh, they live these lives of um, proverbial quiet desperation, you know, where they have desires that will never be met and they just have to live with them. What are the differences in the motivations for stranger rape and acquaintance rape? Difference in, in motivations. Um, well, uh, st- yeah, stranger rape. So, so first, uh, I have a as you know, a whole chapter, two chapters devoted to, to rape or sexual assault. One uh, dealing with the psychology of the perpetrator, the perpetrators, and one dealing with the psychology of the victims, of the defenses that women have to prevent becoming a victim or fend off the assault or deal with the aftermath. Um, and, uh, and, and this surprises some people, but the, the vast majority of rapes are not stranger rapes. They're actually a minority. 10, 15 percent uh, or so. Uh, most rapes occur, uh, they're, they're date rapes or acquaintance rapes uh, and even uh, partner rapes. So and, and, and this is an interesting historical fact that marital rape used to be an incoherent concept. That, that is, people, if you say marital rape, the husband raped his wife, they say, what are you, what are you talking about? That's, that can't occur. Uh, and at least in the United States and most Western cultures, that there is now a, a law that uh, so the law used to mean 
if you raped a stranger, that was criminal activity. If you raped your part, your romantic partner, or your, your spouse, that was not criminal activity. Uh, and so uh, now who created these laws? It's interesting that these laws are a reflection of a male sexual psychology. Well, this is my partner. I am entitled to sexual access to her uh, whenever I whenever I want. Uh, and um, uh, so uh, so so you combine those with acquaintance rapes and date rapes and then things like uh, I don't know, it's the stereotype, but it has some some truth fraternity parties on college campuses where the guys spike, spike the drinks, um, typically with high uh, amounts of alcohol so that you don't taste the alcohol and, uh, you know, this kind of sweet um, punch that they that they serve. And um, and one of the stereotypes is that the guys who rape are these kind of ugly low mate value drooling strangers who are jumping out of the woman from a dark alley. And that's not true. And one of the things I talk about in the book is, so this is one, it's kind of a cool example of an evolutionary hypothesis that I think has been largely falsified, or at least is not correct in its original form. And that's what's called the mate deprivation hypothesis. That is that it's uh uh, the loser males, basically, who can't... These incels uh, that we talked about earlier on. Yeah, yeah, who can't attract a woman through normal means resort to rape as a last-ditch strategy. And it turns out that uh, that it's almost the reverse. That is, the, the best predictors of who does the raping is guys who are actually successful. They ha- have a short-term mating strategy, high, high sex drive, high desire for sexual variety, uh, and they can get away with it. So in the modern environment, the the, the guys that have made the news, uh, Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, uh, even the governor of New York, uh, Andrew Cuomo, less more sexual harassment than, than rape on his side. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein be another one. These guys are often very wealthy, very high in social status, uh, but they're able to get away with it because of their power, because of their wealth and they can pay off victims. So for example, the, you know, uh, well, and this occurs in deviating a little bit from your exact question, uh, sexual harassment that, that occurred on uh, uh, Fox News, for example, by Bill O'Reilly and Roger Ailes and everything. It turned out these guys were able to pay off the women with large monetary settlements that had non-disclosure agreements. Uh, so it, whereas guys who are the, at the low end of the resource and status totem pole, they, they can't get away with it as much. And so if you talk about people who have been convicted of rape, uh, the, yes, they do fall at the lower ends of the totem pole, but that's not a reflection of the guys who actually do it um, mm-hmm. and get away with it. What that suggests is that most men have a desire to do it and only those who have the faculty to be able to get away with it with limited costs or are sufficiently motivated actually end up committing it. And this is something yeah. that you talk about here in, in the book about are all men potential rapists? Right, right. And, and I think that the, the, answer, the answer to that is unknown, but it's probably no. I think that, you know, to do the experiment, what you'd have to do is put men in the, a low cost situation where there would be 
zero penalties for engaging in a rape. And the closest proximity we have to that would be a warfare context where you're in a group that has just killed all the males in this group. And there's this group of helpless females with no defenders. Um, and rape and warfare, of course, is, is very common, but, but not all men do it. And I think that there, is, there are men, uh, and we don't know what percentage, who would never, even under the most, quote, optimal circumstances, would never engage in rape. Um, and, and I think it's, you know, your uh, earlier reflection that, you know, these, you know, when they say all men are doing these things, you say, well, no, that I'm not doing those things. And I, I think so. I think that the answer is no. I think that uh, the, the all men, we can't say definitively. So obviously we can't do the study where we put men in these situations. So, okay, we're going to slaughter all the bodyguards of these women and put you in this no cost situation. We obviously can't run experiments like that. Uh, but, um, you know, if I were in the armed services as a psychologist doing studies, I would look at, well, what are the characteristics of the men who do rape in those circumstances and characteristics of men who do not? And I think, again, the dark triad is probably going to play a big role uh, in which men do and which men do not. How do you think men can protect themselves from enacting sexual assault of all types? Uh, I, I think deep knowledge of our evolved sexual psychology is key. And, and we, we covered some of these bases earlier. I think that it, it really, we really have to understand that we do have this sexual overperception bias. And I'll tell you a, a very brief story um, on that uh, that caused me to correct my, my uh, sexual overperception bias to the degree that I can. So some of these things are more easily correctable than others. So, so I, was, uh, I teach a course in uh, human mating strategies, psychology of human mating. And I was, this was a, a, a while back, and I was teaching about the sexual overperception bias. So this is, we're talking a long time ago. Um, and as I was taught, describing the sexual overperception bias, there was a woman in the class who's like kind of lit up like a light bulb. And I thought something I just said really struck uh, nerve with her. And sure enough, class ended. She comes up to me afterwards. She's a very attractive woman, very kind of a smiley disposition. And she said that this perfectly explained why uh, it, her relationship with her boyfriend ended. And it ended because they would go to parties, they would go to bars together, she and her boyfriend, and other guys would just be hitting up on her right and left. And so she was attractive, but also she was very smiley, very friendly. Uh, and the boyfriend was like constantly jealous. And so he couldn't take it and she couldn't take it. And here's the thing. So I had just been teaching about the sexual overperception bias. I thought she was trying to hit on me. <laughs> uh, so it was like, I, I still, with that knowledge, had difficulty turning it off. Now, of course, you know, then I, I go back to my office and then I have the metacognition that, no, you know, it was my Idiot. sexual overperception yeah. bias. Yeah. Uh, but, um, but I think, I think that knowledge about these things has to help to reduce conflict between the sexes. Because if we're unaware, like, for example, uh, there's this, also this movement now, what I, what I call sex difference denialism. And there's this worry that somehow if we admit that there are any fundamentally evolved sex differences, then this will be disastrous and result in discrimination against women. And I think the opposite is true. I think recognizing 
these fundamental sex differences in our sexual psychology is critical to not harming women. So I think the sex difference denialism actually harms women because it makes us ignorant uh, to the causal processes that are resulting in sexual violence. What's your opinion of the term toxic masculinity as it's used in 2021? Well, <clears throat> I think there, I mean, masculinity, there are, you know, uh, toxic elements to it. Uh, so, it, uh, you know, I think that if it's used precisely to describe those bad elements, like what I would call dark triad type elements, then it's perfectly appropriate. But I don't think that it captures all elements of masculinity. So at least, you know, now versions of masculinity have changed across cultures and over time, but some are quite noble, you know, uh, sacrificing, uh, protecting the woman, showing bravery in the face of danger, um, you know, uh, and historically even a man, you know, providing and protecting his family, providing for and protecting his family, his, his wife, his children. So I think there are, uh, you know, you don't want to take a broad brush stroke of the word toxic and you know, slap it on all things that are male related. But you also don't want to neuter that. And this is one of the the interesting things that we see. The, f the front brain stuff, the things that we can rationalize and cerebrally come up with an understanding for, those are the ones that we can tweet about and we can have social movements about. But when it comes to the more base stuff, when it comes to things like attraction, there is not a chance in hell that the... Um, person that misuses toxic masculinity and wants to tear down the way that men are constructed would would not look to date a male, if it was a female, or mm -hmm. even a male, who wasn't mm -hmm. higher in mate value than them and was able to get resources. You don't want to date a shorter man, a man that's less educated, right. or a man that's got less money than you. So right. what we can do in the front of the brain and what our biology and our psychology still wants to enact are in this sort of constant battle. And I think that yes. you're right. What we need to do is oh. only through complete transparency can we get those two things to align and say, okay, yeah. this is how we are. This is why we act through the things that we do. And um, good Lord, if this... <laughs> <laughs> if this book is not a very uncomfortable way to arrive at that. David, I've been looking forward to this for a very long time. I'm very, very glad that you've joined me. Uh, either Bad Men or When Men Behaving Badly will be available on Amazon. Everybody that has been interested in this conversation should go and check it out. It's a fantastic book. I know it's your first return to solo authoring in a decade, maybe over a decade, something like that. Yeah, yeah. So I've, I've revised some of my previous books, uh, but this is my first new, new book, my first new, new uh, sole authored book. Yeah, I'm very happy to get back to it. And this is, as I said, this is a, a, labor, a labor of love. And I, I really do hope that it helps. I hope that, that it helps men. I hope that it helps women. And I hope that it helps to reduce conflict between the sexes because we have to understand each other's sexual psychology. And that applies to both women and men. So I think that's, that's the key to reducing sexual conflict. I love it. And davidbus.com to look at research papers and check out the rest of your stuff? Yeah, yeah, just my name. So davidbus.com will take you right to my website. That'll have links to my books, links to my uh, scientific articles, which can be downloaded for free, uh, and links to other things. So right. yeah, david davidbus.com. Just go and get this. Go and get men when men behaving badly. Behave badly. When men behave badly. Go and get that. Get whatever it is. It's in the show notes below. Go and buy it. David, thank you so much for today. Thank you, Chris. It's been great chatting with you. It's been a lot of fun. 